The Seahawks' string of high-flying shootouts came to an end on Sunday, as Seattle won a surprising defensive battle against the Arizona Cardinals. Back at 500 and tied for first in the NFC West, what should we expect from this team going forward? And is Geno Smith now a better quarterback than Russell Wilson? The Ringer's Steven Ruiz joins us to dive into that and more. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my perspicacious producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Tired already, man. You got the jargon game going. You're making me think right off the bat. That's that's a lot to deal with um, in, within 10 seconds of the episode starting, but I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here with you, Jackson. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, man. I mean, just when we thought we had this team figured out, right? Yes. As we all expected, the Seahawks had a low-scoring, defense-driven win against a division <laughs> rival. This was this was the kind of shit I was expecting to see like going into the season. I was expecting a lot of 19-9 to games. I was not expecting 45-42, to 39-32. to I often say we tend to see the very good in the NFL and the very bad in the NFL as being worlds apart. When in reality, everyone in the NFL is really fucking good at football. And so you do get some of these outcomes that seem like outliers. But in reality, it's a play here. It's a play there. Uh, I got to say, for as fun as, you know, say the Lions game was, where it's just who can land the last haymaker. Same thing with the Saints game, even though they lost. This is actually a really encouraging game to watch, to see that they can win this way. Well, yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of the positives that you take out of that game was the fact that the defensive line didn't look like a heaping pile of dog shit which couldn't have been said mm-hmm. about the past several weeks you know watching games that are you know like 38 to 41 or whatever whatever the scores were that's just like very uncharacteristic that's I don't watch college football a whole lot for a reason, Jackson. I like, you know, my low scoring, yeah. gritty, you know, salt of the earth matchups. And uh, it, it was nice to to see something that uh, looked a little bit more like uh, Pete Carroll's favorite brand of football. Yeah. You know, one thing that I've noticed about championship quality teams and no mistake, I'm not elevating Seattle to that at all. Not even close. But the goal is for them to get there eventually. And one of the things that great teams do is show that they can win different ways. You know, high flying teams, if things aren't clicking or if the weather's not there, do they have the ability to adapt and to win um, if the game flow isn't going according to script? And we saw Seattle do that for the first time, which I thought was kind of uplifting as a fan, especially as we're dealing with this sort of rebuild, retool year. I also thought Geno Smith actually took a step forward in this one, uh, even though it was a down day for him statistically. We'll talk about that more in a bit. Uh, because we have one of the best NFL writers in the business joining us today. Uh, his weekly QB rankings are my go-to for an updated view of the quarterback landscape. He is Steven Ruiz. Steven, thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. I don't have any fancy vocabulary to describe you gentlemen. <laughs> what, you called him a porcupine? Was that what they called me? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, exactly what they called me. I do I have that, that word in my vocab. <laughs> I get that a lot, so it was a little contrived this time, but, you know, Jackson will be better. Yeah, he's 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 prickly. <laughs> Well, yeah, man. Appreciate you you coming on. I mean, let's jump right into the Geno stuff. I mean, because you've been in on Geno Smith as a better 
quarterback than what I think the national perspective of him has been. And you felt that way for a long time. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you liked Gino before he started performing the way that he has this year. Yeah, so I did not expect this. My thing was always that Gino is better than you think because he he became sort of a laughing stock, especially after the IK and Kampali situation where he gets punched in the face, broken jaw, loses his starting job, never gets it back. But when you watch the film before then, like from his first two seasons, the stats weren't good. He was playing with bad wide receivers. He was playing with a bad offensive line, playing for a bad coach, or not a good offensive coach in Rex Ryan. But when you watch the film, you could see that he knew how to play the position in a way that works in the NFL. Like he wasn't afraid of the pocket, like afraid of a tight pocket. He knew how to manage the pocket, manage pressure, avoid pressure by sliding up in, up in the pocket. And he could throw. He could throw the football very well. And I think that's one thing that's always stood out with him. That's why he was drafted in the second round is that he's a, a good thrower of the football. And when you combine those two things, I think if you get an opportunity to play and you get those reps and you get experience – the other stuff, the smaller things like reading a defense, knowing when to go to your check down, knowing when to when a receiver isn't open and when you need to go uh, advance in your progression, that stuff comes to you eventually. I think he had to wait so long to get to this point because he was getting those reps in practice, but he, he wasn't getting live reps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it kind of stunted his growth. So it it doesn't surprise me that he eventually developed into this. It did surprise me that he was able to develop into it while playing on the bench and not getting live reps. But that that was always my premise. The guy could play quarterback. Yeah, well, and his his numbers at West Virginia were insane. I mean, it's not like he the the idea of Gino coming out was not that he's this game manager, which is how most people still see him. Uh and and I get putting up big numbers in college is different than being able to do that against NFL defenses. But uh, I'm glad that you pointed out Gino's ability to step up and into the pocket and work through his progressions, because it's wild to me to watch that as a Seahawks fan. It seems like such a simple thing. Um, but I do think it's what one of the main things that separates good NFL quarterbacks from not good NFL quarterbacks. And occasionally you get an outlier like Russell Wilson, who has never been a step up into a collapsing pocket and work through his reads guy. It's been uh okay. First reads, not there pressures coming. Let me get creative. And that's all we saw for a decade. And so now we're like seeing throws on time. We're seeing throws over the middle of the field. We're seeing some really like basic jump shot bounce pass stuff from Geno Smith that keeps the offense on schedule and allows them to set up plays later in the game that, you know, we just haven't really seen before. Yeah. And I think I would add that there's like a richness of passing concepts that they didn't have before. And I do think that's the one thing that we get wrong when we're talking about a support system for a quarterback or the other way around, like whether a quarterback's assistant quarterback, like I think about Baker Mayfield and there was a debate around about him. I was one of the people that was in that talk pointing out the play action splits when he didn't use play action. He was not a very good quarterback. I, and people would say, well, yeah, when you take away his best plays, his stats aren't going to look good. But the question is, is Baker Mayfield the type of quarterback that's going to create those situations himself where like Lamar Jackson, he's always going to get, loaded boxes. He's always going to get one high coverages because you have to account for him as a runner. 
Whereas Baker Mayfield, what he needed was a strong run game and a strong offensive line to continue to be put in situations where he could run play action. And I think that kind of translates to like the Geno Russ comparison in this offense. When you have a quarterback who is going to stick in the pocket, that means you can call more drop back passing concepts because you don't have to, you don't need that first read to be open. And it doesn't matter if it takes a little longer for that play to develop. Whereas with Russ, and there, I know there was always this debate about his offensive line and how much he, how much he made it harder on them. But the one thing you can't deny is that he raised their degree of difficulty because pressure affected him more than it affects Geno Smith. So I think the offensive line can get away with a little more with a quarterback like this, and the offensive coordinator can call uh, a wider variety of plays. It just makes everyone around him their job easier. I think that's why you're seeing such a big difference between this offense with Russell Wilson, who's a more talented quarterback, and how it looks with Geno Smith. Yeah, you know, uh, we had Matt Nichols on earlier in the year, and he's offensive line guru, and he was talking about the most frustrating thing as an offensive lineman is to hold your block for four seconds, five seconds, how hard that is to do, and then still give up a sack, right? It's, it's really the only stat that you get as an offensive lineman is sacks allowed and, and penalties. And, you know, with Russ, it, it was always worth it because once, twice, three times a game, he'd create massive plays that wouldn't be there otherwise. But also once, twice, three times a game, there would be a holding penalty or a sack allowed where you go back and watch the replay and you're like, Dwayne Brown did his job on that, you know, yeah. and they're throwing their hands. I mean, you're seeing it in Denver too. They're just kind of throwing their hands up after a sack or a throwaway or whatever, like, what do you want us to do here? Yeah, it's it's tough. And and like you said, it was always worth it. And the but the question always was, when will it stop be worth it worth it? When will that trade off yeah. tilt in the other direction? And that's what we're seeing in Denver right now. Like Russ can still create. He just can't do it as consistently as he did at his prime. So we're still seeing flashes like the 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 last Broncos game. He starts the game out, he has that big that big throw down the field on the touchdown drive in the first quarter. And then you're like, oh, that's Russ. Like that's that's the Russ we're used to. We never see it again for the rest of the game. And they don't. And they what did they score? Right. 19 points. That's the difference between Russ now and Russ back in the day. And like, I think we have to give credit to Pete and John Snyder for for seeing that because I don't think they they give in so easily to the trade demand if they thought that Russ was his game was going to age a little better than it has. Yeah, and and that was kind of a hallmark of. The episode with Brady Henderson, who wrote the big article for ESPN about kind of what led to that divorce is he said the linchpin of this whole thing that wasn't talked about at the time is that they saw Russell Wilson as a declining player. And they, I mean, (laughs) it's early still, but I was expecting the first year for sure. And maybe even the first two for this trade to look like Mm -hmm. a slam dunk for Denver. And then you hope that Seattle sets up the dominoes, you know, correctly with the pieces they received in order to, you know, three years down the road, maybe say, okay, Hey, this was a decent trade. <laughs> it's not yeah, how yeah. it looks right now at all. And you know, it's, you kind of, at this point you say, all right, well, we trust the guys who have been seeing him every day for the last few years, but it, I, I do want to get to something that I'm sure you've been getting lots of feedback on over the last day or so. Uh, it's kind of been a punchline or a running joke this year that Gino has been better than Russ, but now we're a third of the way through the season Smith continues to play well. Wilson keeps struggling. As a result, 
you have moved Geno Smith ahead of Russell Wilson in your quarterback rankings. Yeah, and uh, if you look at the the rankings, they're based on six attributes. The attributes are accuracy, arm talent, creativity, decision-making, pocket presence, and pre-snap. Now, Russell Wilson has an advantage in accuracy, arm talent, and creativity. The big difference, and why I think Geno Smith is playing better this year, is one, pocket presence, which we've already covered, and then two, his, his decision-making, like when to pull the trigger, when to make, throw passes, when to stay in the pocket, and when to exit the pocket has been significantly better than Russell Wilson this year. And I would argue that it's been significantly better than any year we've seen from Russell Wilson. And that's the difference. And I think, and honestly, I do think that the changing tactics of defenses have played a large part in this. I don't think it's all Mm -hmm. that Russell Wilson has declined. I think, I don't think that accounts for all of his decline and how Gino looks better. I think we're seeing the types of coverages that force quarterbacks to go through their progressions and hang in the pocket and not rely on explosive plays. And that's been a big difference. And I think that's what you're seeing, not only in my rankings, but just in the production of both of these guys and their stats. You know, I mentioned at the top of the show that your rankings are kind of my go-to and and they are, and I do like that. And by the way, guys, you can find his quarterback rankings on the ringer.com. They are awesome. Just look up Steven Ruiz QB rankings, but you can actually sort by these different attributes too, which I always have fun doing. Uh, but Steven, a little peek behind the curtain here. When you're putting these rankings together, what are the parameters? Is it who'd you pick to win one game? Is it a rest of the season ranking? Or is it like a full, if I had to commit to a quarterback as an NFL team, here's how I'd rank them. No, it's it, yeah, it's the one game. It's like next week we need to okay. win a game. Who would I? Who would I want regardless of what's around them? to be my quarterback. And that's why like I I get complaints about Jalen hurts being too low. Like he's ahead of Trevor Lawrence or he's behind Trevor Lawrence. And that's been a big complaint because if you compare their stats, one's low key and MVP candidate, the other ones is, you know, he's just kind of in the middle of the pack in terms of stats. But yeah, I think Trevor Lawrence is a better quarterback. And when you watch him on film, he looks like a better quarterback. He does better. He's like more accurate. He has a better arm. He goes through his progressions. He's more comfortable in the pocket. He's not as creative like he's not as big of a creative force as Jalen Hurts and what he provides for that Eagles offense. But in a vacuum, Trevor Lawrence is a better quarterback, and that's what it's based on. So let's let's run a little hypothetical scenario since you're ranking these quarterbacks based on the what if of who do I want for a game next week, you know. If all else is equal, you know, the trade happens, you know, Charles Cross is still a Seahawk, Noah Fant is a Seahawk. The situations as they are now, if you dropped Geno into Denver and Russell back into Seattle, how do you think that those offenses look? Do you think that the Broncos offense still looks as anemic? Do you think that the Seahawks are not as uh, explosive as they have looked with Geno? You're as methodical. Well, how, how does that change in your eyes, Steven? I think the Seahawks look like they looked last year. I know the, the tackle position has been upgraded, but these are still rookies. I do think that Denver looks a lot better. And no, I don't think Seattle looks as good. And this is why I think they run similar offenses and both offenses need to be under center on, on early downs to get the most out of the system. And clearly that's not happening in Denver where they can't run the ball. They're running out of the, out of the gun. It's not working. Their play action game really isn't working. And now they're asking Russ to be a drop back passer on third and long. I think the Seahawks would be in the same exact position as Denver is right now if you had Russell Wilson as his quarterback. It's not because wow. he's not a better quarterback in a vacuum. It's just 
where the league is going, what defenses are forcing quarterbacks to do, what they're forcing them to be. Russell Wilson was never that. He has never been that. I I, I do think if you if you transport 27-year-old Russ into the Seahawks offense, it looks a lot better. But this Russ, I don't think it works. Okay. Okay. So that brings us to the question that Seahawks fans are now unexpectedly faced with. And that is how good is Gino really? Like, is he in your mind capable of earning a significant extension in Seattle? And if not, is he a QB that's starting somewhere in 2023? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, because he's way better than I even, even I thought he would be. I did not think he would be. Right. I mean, fortunately they don't have to make that decision for a while, <laughs> a while, but I mean, they got to be at least thinking about it. Now. And here's the thing. Like, you look at his stats and you're like, okay, we've seen quarterbacks have one year where they just break out. I'm thinking of Case Keenum in Minnesota. It's the first person I thought of, yeah. Blake Bortles that one year, everyone thought he was good. Ryan Tannehill, you could argue, for those two years in Tennessee. The difference is you look at the underlying metrics and Geno passes the sniff test in all of them. You look at the underlying metrics for the Seahawks offense. They, they aren't like one of these lucky teams getting lucky on third down. They are doing well on first, second, and third down. This seems legit. And then you turn on the film and he's like commanding the pocket, like, like Philip rivers. He's like, do he's running yeah. real drop back concepts and doing real stuff. This isn't fake. Like I, I, I did not think this was going to happen, but there is nothing through the first six weeks that has shown me that this is fake and it's going to fall off a cliff at some point. I mean, I don't think the Seahawks offense is going to be as good as it was over the first five weeks. But Gino is the best player in that offense right now. That's crazy. That's crazy because there is some talent on this offense. And I want to I, I want to get to that. I, I mean, in the Cardinals game, they only scored 19 points, but we saw Seattle move the ball pretty well. Yeah, uh, they only came away with one TD, but they did have four field goals. And typically, if you can put five scoring drives together in a game, you've got a pretty good chance of winning. As you've kind of watched Shane Waldron's offense take root, because like we're often saying on this show, uh, if Russell Wilson's your quarterback, you're running the Russell Wilson offense. So I'm, I'm kind of giving Shane Waldron a pass on last year, but now that we're seeing his concepts really take hold, is this something that can be a sustainably good, maybe even excellent offense in with what he's doing, or is it just kind of a matter of time for the NFL figures it out? No. Cause yeah, I think he's going to be able to sustain it. And I say that going back to the, th- I, something I said five minutes ago, there's like a richness to the to the Seahawks offense now. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you have to run the Russ, Russell Wilson offense. And we know what that looks like. We know you're in shotgun for the most part. You know you're doing a lot of runs from the gun. You know you're doing a lot of gun play action. But you look at like S- Seattle's formational usage and their personnel usage and how, when they go under the gun and w- or when they're under center. And they're, it's like totally different from last year where they were only doing a couple things now, like formationally and personnel wise, they're doing a bunch of things. So there's nothing that you can yeah. really like get a beat on as a, as a defense. This is like, these are the hardest offenses to face. This is why Buffalo's so good right now is because they can do anything. They can go under center. They can, they can put a fullback on the field. They can put four wide receivers on the field. They can go in the gun and run a spread. They can run an option game with this. You you have almost that level of versatility right now with the Seahawks offense. And it's something you don't see across the league right now. That's like been the, the big theme for offenses uh, this season is a lack of balance, like conceptual balance in the Seahawks habit. Yeah, it's true. And I'm glad you pointed it out because one of the things that I was so encouraged by in the Cardinals game is Arizona really sold out to take DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett 
out of the game. And, and they did, uh, they combined for four catches and 51 yards, I think on 10 total targets. That is a success, right? But Gino was something like 19 of 22 targeting everyone else. He got the tight ends involved. Noah Fant had his best game as a Seahawk. Um, D Eskridge had his best game as a Seahawk. And while they're not, you know, eye popping fantasy numbers, they kept moving the ball down the field. They kept sustaining scoring drives, even with the two highlight uh, guys being taken out of it. And I think it's a credit to exactly what you're saying. I, I love the term, the richness of the offense, because we are actually seeing some layered route concepts instead of, yeah. you know, can rust by enough time for someone to get open enough to take the shot. And they're getting the ball out early and winning in different ways. And I'm really impressed by their two rookie tackles in this. I mean, it just seems like everything is weeks ahead of development. So here's my question with the tackles. And I, I haven't watched closely enough. Like I, I, I'm watching for Gino every week for the, the quarterback rankings, but I'm not watching the tackles in, like closely. My question yep. is, do these tackles look as good with a, with a quarterback who's more erratic in the pocket like Russell Wilson? I'm wondering if we're saying the same things about them. Right. That's, I mean, that is a great question. Probably not. I think, I think that having someone with the composure that Gino has shown so far this year is going to make lots of people around him look better. I think the, so to answer your question, no, no. I think um, having a quarterback that's more, as you say, erratic is going to make things tougher on any tackle uh, and certainly on rookies. But I do think it's important that when you're put in a position to succeed that you succeed and that's what they're doing. And that's, that's really encouraging. You know, I was uh, chatting with Danny Kelly the other day and we were talking about uh, someone on Twitter. I think it was hustle. Chilson put out uh, a question that said, if you were to redraft the NFL draft right now, how many of the Seahawks draft picks would be first rounders? We were kind of talking about it. Like uh, Charles cross obviously would stay a first rounder. And then maybe Tariq Woolen yeah. is already uh, a first rounder. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Uh, but I wasn't sure on Abe Lucas. They they drafted him in the in the fourth round. I was thinking maybe he's like an early day two guy. And Danny's like, I think he goes back into the first round. So, you know, I, I do think that there is something to the actual talent that these guys are showing. And to get that from first year players who haven't even tapped or, you know, reached the ceiling of their potential yet is very exciting for this offense, whether it's Gino or if they draft a guy or whatever, moving forward to have that kind of solidarity on the bookends frees up so much in terms of not only what you can do as an offense, but how you approach future drafts, how you approach free agency. Now you've got the leeway to spend more money to get a really great guard. If you want to, instead of trying to piece it together, cause you're paying your tackles a bunch of money. So I, I, I agree with you. I think, Gino and Shane Waldron are making it easier on them, but it's still tough to play tackle in the NFL, especially right now. And especially as rookies. And I think they're doing a good job. No. Yeah, they definitely are. I don't, I don't want to take anything away from them. I, I, but I do think it's a good sign for Shane Waldron that these rookies are playing so well. I think that's like a hallmark of good coaching is when young players can step into Mm. a difficult role and play well. And that's something that we had talked about before this season, Jackson, when we were in the midst of the battle between Geno Smith and Drew Locke, we were asking, okay, which starting quarterback sets these young guys up for more success? Because we were much more confident in Geno pre-snap than Drew Locke, obviously. And going back to your rankings, Stephen, you have Geno at an 81 grade pre-snap and Russ at 70. And I know that 
you know, that's never really been a strength of Russell Wilson's, you know, you see Max Unger leave and (laughs) they never quite recovered from that, but having the structure of a quality offensive game planner and coach, as well as a quarterback who can operate that with or without the feedback in the headset is huge for their development. Yeah, I definitely think that. And it's funny because we saw on Monday night, uh, Russ give up a free rusher because he didn't know to slide the protection to the left, even though the defense was screaming that we're sending pressure off the left. And it's like a thing you take for granted, granted for with quarterbacks. And especially with a guy like Russ, who like early on in his career, a lot of the praise heaped on him was like about how he was so studious and how he prepared and how he was sending like these dossiers to his teammates and stuff. But like, when you watch the film, it was so funny. It just never showed up on film. It's like, if this is a guy that like has mastered the playbook and and protections, why does he play so recklessly? And why does he never pick up a pressure himself? So I always found that funny, but Gino, and I didn't realize Gino really had this in his game because he, he, the only film he had when he was a second year player with the jets, like he didn't get an opportunity to show it off. But like, even in preseason, you saw the command of the offense. And I think one of the mo- big moments for Pete in preseason, I forget who they were playing. It might've been Minnesota, but they lost a game where Drew, uh, where Drew Locke didn't slide the protection to the left and he took a sack. And I think it was a sack fumble. That was the first preseason game. And it, outside of that play, I think the consensus was that people thought that Drew Locke had played for the most part, better than Gino, or at least his play uh, portended that he had a higher ceiling than Gino. And I don't think that's necessarily been the case as things have played out. I I mean, and, and it was, it was a great point that you made earlier in the season, Mike, and it's, I I'm guilty of exactly what you're saying. I thought that Drew Locke was the higher ceiling, lower floor player. I did not give Gino Smith's ceiling nearly enough credit. The last thing I want to hit on with this offense is, you know, Steven, Mike and I are, I wouldn't say that we're pro running back, but we're pro good running back. I don't think that really good running backs are just so easily replaced. Uh, you, you may disagree and I want to get your thoughts on that too, but I came away from that game. Very, very pleased with Ken Walker. The third, he looks ready to be, there's not a lot of every down backs in the NFL anymore, but he looks ready to be one of those guys that can be out there for 70% of the snaps and increase what an offense can do. Yeah. I think when you watch him play, the one thing that stands out is he just moves differently. And I, yes, I'm not like, does. I'm not like a great run, uh, running back talent evaluator. I don't know much about the position. I can't tell you like how well they're reading like blocks and stuff, but that's my way of scouting running backs. Do they look different on the screen? Do they stand out? And I think Kenneth Walker, especially in this last game, looked different in the way he moves. And I agree with you guys. I, I'm pro running back. Like I think a very talented running back can change a lot for an offense. And I think you're seeing in Kansas City how they struggle to run so much. I think a part of that is because they have these running backs that are really just glorified receivers. They're just tools for the passing game, like CEH. That's what he did at LSU. And they don't have guys that actually know how to run the football. And you're seeing in Seattle, that's there's been an emphasis placed on that. We know how much they've invested in that position to a fault, admittedly. Sure. But like, sure. I think Pete can identify good, talented running backs. And I like Rashad Penny, I know he had trouble staying healthy, but like when he got healthy and he got a chance last oh, year man. and early this year, it was obvious just watching him that he was a special, special player. Right. Yeah. If, if the, 14 games before his injury were 
this most recent injury were the first 14 games of his career. We're looking at that pick so much differently, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, he's probably maybe not still worth a late first, but it's not such an egregious pick because over that stretch, he was the best running back in the NFL from just a pure yardage standpoint. Right. So I, you're right. I mean, Pete Carroll, John Schneider were able to identify that kind of talent. And when it comes to running backs, there are people who can just speak about them better than I can. But the number one thing that I look for is contact balance. Um, Just like with a wide receiver, it's really great if you're big and fast and strong and can jump high. But the number one thing I care about is can you get open and can you get open quickly? And for running backs, all the measurables are great. And Ken Walker has all of them. Uh, But when he gets hit, his balance is really remarkable. And his ability to keep moving forward immediately after a big juke is is really remarkable. He's getting yards that other running backs aren't getting. And that's what the value in a guy like him is to me. It's what the value in a Nick Chubb is. Is Yeah, there are lots of running backs that can get what's blocked for them. Most NFL running backs can do that. They're amazing athletes. But can you get the yards that aren't there? And Ken Walker is doing that at a really high rate. He had four explosive runs in one game alone. He's already, he's, he's been the starter for one game and a quarter, and he's already fourth in the NFL in missed tackles forced. Yeah. I think one thing the nerds get wrong about the running back position and just the impact of the run game as a whole is yes, like it may not show up in the numbers and you could tell NFL coaches that like, you don't need to run to, to, to run play action. But if coaches believe that, then it matters. Yeah, because that's how they game plan. That's how they call plays. That's how they decide like what to focus on during the week. If they think that that matters, then it does matter. It inherently matters. So that's the one thing I'll say about like the running backs don't matter and running game doesn't matter thing. Yeah, I I completely agree. And as we have seen so many of these high flying offenses get grounded over the last couple of years with this shell coverage, the two high safeties, all that stuff. The way to beat that is to run effectively. I mean, the NFL is cyclical. It's like fashion stuff is going to come back around. It's going to come back in vogue. It's going to have a little new twist on it, but it's the idea that in 10 years, you know, running backs are just going to be this afterthought and it's just going to be who can pass the, the best uh, is just not giving NFL defense is nearly enough credit. And speaking of the real story of this last game for the Seahawks was their defense. I mean, after giving up 84 points and nearly a thousand yards in the two weeks prior, they absolutely muzzled the Cardinals and their tiny little beaks. I mean, they gave up a field goal on the first drive of the game, but after that they shut out Kyler Murray and the rest of that offense. And Pete Carroll credited the improvement to a less complicated approach with the defensive lineman, basically saying like, Hey, we're not going to give you as much stuff to think about in the game. I want you to go get the quarterback. And they responded with six sacks. As you look at that game and compare it to what we've seen from the Seahawks defense in the first five games, does this signal a potential turnaround for you? Or is it just kind of a blip on the radar of an otherwise bad defense? I think if we hadn't seen the changes in the the defensive front, I would be more inclined to say that it was just a blip and they're playing a bad offense, a bad, a poorly coached team that's easy to scheme up for. But since they did make those changes and like Pete Carroll's always been a attack your gap. We don't want you reading at the line of scrimmage type of guy. And obviously that's where the league's been going. And Pete tried to adjust and he's hot. He made these coaching hires and there's been changes, but the fact that they went back to this and it worked so well, I think is a good sign. And I want to see it against a better offense. I think the, the chargers, their run game isn't great, but the way they run the ball will test that type of 
of defensive front in a way that the Cardinals really won't just because their run game is so unique to the NFL. They're running a bunch of option stuff, stuff that other mm-hmm. teams really don't run. So I think this next game will tell us a lot about where the Seahawks defense is going forward. But I do think it starts with the the front, like their problems early on, like they couldn't get mm-hmm. quarterbacks into bad situations. And that's really become the key to success on defense now is getting quarterbacks into obvious passing situations when you could start to do more funky stuff on the back end and coverage. And if this if these new fronts do lead to better run defense on early downs, I think it's going to lead to better pass defense on late downs. Well, we're seeing them start to capitalize. I mean, we talked about the two rookie tackles. They got two rookie corners who are playing outside of their minds right now in Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant, who were drafted in the fourth round, the fifth round. And you know, all of a sudden Tariq Woolen is, we'll see if he keeps it up, but he leads the NFL in takeaways. He's got six takeaways in six games. It's absurd for anybody, much less somebody that is learning the game at the NFL level. Who's a converted wide receiver. Stop me. If you've heard this before Seahawks fans, and it's, it's so exciting to see, but you're right. If you can put quarterbacks into bad situations, there's still really talented quarterbacks in the NFL. You have to make them pay on the back end. And, I mean, I think we're starting to see a couple of cornerstones on the defense as well. Uh, you know, Trayvon Diggs had kind of a similar start to his career that Tariq Woolen is having in that he made a bunch of big splash plays, bunch of turnovers. Uh, he housed a couple of picks and threw himself right into the forefront of one of the up and coming rising defensive stars in the league. Thing is, is, he was a gambler, right? Like the passing numbers against Trayvon Diggs were good. It it was in an opposing offense's favor, despite the turnovers to target Trayvon Diggs. Uh, we're not seeing that with Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant uh, passer ratings when targeting them are low. Uh, you know, general efficiency metrics when targeting these guys are low, especially over the last two weeks. And, you know, I think PFF has both of them rated in their top 10 corners so far this year. Uh, do you see sustainability with these two or is it just kind of like, Hey, turnovers come in bunches. They kind of have gotten lucky and we'll see some regression. I think the woolen hype is based on the interceptions, but that's just because I don't think people have been watching film of him. And like you saw it in preseason, he stood out to me. I don't know why I was watching Seahawks defensive film in preseason, but I was, and I was like, <laughs> who the hell is this, this guy? Who is this alien? That it's is because you're a degenerate. Yeah. It's not, my wife is not happy that I was watching Seahawks film in August, but <laughs> Uh, no, I, I think Woolen is good. I, I, he, I don't think he knows how to play football yet, but I think that will Uh come and he's playing for a good coach to teach him how to play football. But the fact that he is making plays is a good sign that his athleticism and his build and all of that is going to play and it's going to be a factor at the NFL level. He has a very high floor in my opinion, because of that. The question is how high is his ceiling? And I think learning how to play football will dictate that. And I, I do think there's a big difference between what Diggs did last year and what he's doing this year. Yes, interceptions are driving the hype, but you watch Tariq Woolen like cover a, a go ball in man coverage. He doesn't get beat. He's all over them. Mm-hmm. Whereas Trayvon Diggs gets beat on those all the time by like aging receivers. Like he was getting beat by AJ Green, 38-year-old AJ Green or however old AJ Green is now. That's the difference <laughs> yeah. between those two. Yeah, well, and there's no question they're going to get tested this week. I mean, like you mentioned, they're heading to L.A. They're going to face Justin Herbert and the Chargers. Herbert is your number three quarterback right now. It's Mm -hmm. right where I'd have him, too. And while the L.A. offense hasn't been as explosive as I think many people anticipated, 
They might be getting Keenan Allen back. They are loaded with weapons. I mean, Mike Williams is no joke. We obviously know that Austin Eckler is one of the best and, and most versatile running backs in the NFL. That said, their defense has been less impressive than expectations. Also, um, currently the betting line is bouncing around about a touchdown in favor of the Chargers. So I got a two-part question for you. One, what chances do you give Seattle winning this game outright? And if that happens, how will they have done it? I think Seattle does have a chance to win this game because of the offense and the structure of Joe Lombardi's offense. I, like all you have to do is cover stick and hitch routes and you're good. They don't run anything downfield. That's, that's all Denver did on Monday. Yeah. So they have experience. Like they've seen it before. I, the one concern I have, is I know the defensive numbers have not been good, but they have had injuries and I think they're getting a little healthier. And I think Brandon Staley's game planning, like if you watch the the Chiefs game, he called a great game against them. He called he's had some good games for in every game except for the Jacksonville game. The question is the talent. Mm-hmm. And I think they found the problem because JC Jackson kept giving up big plays, and that was their big problem, giving up explosives. They benched him for Michael Davis. That helped a lot. Now, I don't know if you want to be playing Michael Davis against DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. They already announced that JC Jackson will be starting on Sunday. Okay, so and there's the question. Is J.C. Jackson busting coverages on Sunday? If so, I think Seattle has a very good chance of winning this game because the Chargers do not score a lot of points. They don't score as many points as they should with this quarterback. That's the question is, can they take advantage of some busts? Can they get the? Can they run the ball against a Chargers defense that hasn't been able to stop the run consistently? If they do those two things, explosive plays and running the ball, I would say that they're the favorite to win. I know that I think the line six right now, I would take them. Uh-huh. I would take them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So how many points does Seattle need to score to win this thing? Ah, that's a good question. Is, is Sunday's defense like the week six defense showing up? <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> uh, I'll say, I think they're going to be easy. They're going to, they're not going to have a hard time defending this offense. I'll say that. So I'll say that if they score 24 points, they win the game. Wow. Okay. I like that. That That's encouraging because I think this offense can score 24 points against this defense. I really do. I don't think the quarterback mismatch is that big if you factor in the offensive coordinators. That's my hot take on this game. That, no, that's, that's spicy enough. That's like a four star. I like it. <laughs> I mean, Mike and I were talking right before you came on. We were just chatting about, oh man, how how does the conversation about this team change? if the Seahawks do go down to LA and beat the chargers and all of a sudden they're four and three and keeping a share of the division lead as you approach the halfway mark. So before we get out of here, I want to do a little vibe check with you on this team. First of all, what were your expectations for Seattle at the start of the season? If you go back in time and just tap into how you're feeling about this team and, and you can put a wins total on that and then have those expectations shifted now that we're a third of the way through the season. Uh, I think I had them winning like nine games. I was very high on Gino, man. I was very high on this team. Love that. I thought the defense was so sexy. I thought the defense was going to be a lot better. I remember I went on a a Seattle radio show and they, I didn't realize that Tyler Lockett was going to be on the show. Mm. (laughs) And then they just, they kind of just sprung it on me when they introduced me and the show, the, the interview was about Gino Smith. And like, I was saying like how the offense was going to be better. So like literally in this off season, I told Tyler Lockett, this is going to be a better offense for you. And the offense is going to be better because of Geno Smith. He was kind of just like, okay, sure. Well, that's great because we actually have DK Metcalf here with us. So if you want, 
<laughs> DK Metcalf would be even more excited if I had told him that. But uh, you're telling I, me, pal. I don't think he enjoyed playing with Russ. But uh, <laughs> I think I said like nine nine wins on that on that uh, radio show, and that they might make the playoffs. Wow. Okay. And so, I mean, has that? I, I I can't imagine that's gone down based on what you've seen, unless unless you're really out on this defense. No, I think the win total is is similar, and I did not realize that that win total might win the NFC West this season. And if the 49ers continue to be banged up, I think there is a very, very good chance that not only is Seattle in the playoffs in January, but they are hosting a playoff game. <laughs> that would be wild, man. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. That is not something I have considered in the range of outcomes before this week. But if they win this week, you do kind of have to think about it. Uh, I am not going to let your little morsel go untasted here, though. You just said you don't think DK Metcalf liked playing with Russell Wilson. I don't necessarily disagree. What is it about that connection that you think just wasn't there for him? I, I think that the mo- the way to get the most out of DK Metcalf, besides like obviously the out of structure, the the explosive plays downfield, is targeting him over the middle of the field, and it's been well covered that Russ has issues targeting the middle of the field. So I think that's the big thing. But I will say that my my theory that DK Metcalf didn't enjoy playing with Russell Wilson is not just a theory. It's been based on things I've heard. Yeah. And I will leave it at that. Yes. Well, we've we've heard the same thing. So I was just curious <laughs> where, where that was coming from. But I, I think it all tracks. And it's such an exciting thought as a Seahawks fan. And, you know, I'm unabashedly a huge DK Metcalf fan is that the numbers he put up with Russell Wilson – we're fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's one of the best first three years in an NFL career that we've seen from wide receiver from a pure statistical output. So the idea that he now has a quarterback that potentially fits him even better is it's a really exciting thought. Yeah, I think that he needed that quarterback to take the next step in his game. Like he came into the league and everyone thought, oh, at the very least, he's going to be a vertical deep threat. And he did prove to be that early on. But I think if he was going to blossom into like a complete receiver, he needed a quarterback that was going to give him the opportunity to do that. And he has one now in Geno Smith. Man, what a world. What a sentence. What a world. Yeah, what a sentence to end on, man. I mean, I... You know, this has been awesome. We are extremely grateful for your time today. We appreciate how full your schedule is with everything that you do. So it means a lot that you came in to wrap with us for a bit. Before we sign out of here, can you tell the people listening where they can get more of your stuff? Yeah, you can find me on theringer.com. The quarterback rankings are at qbrankings.theringer.com. And then find me on Twitter. You actually don't follow me on Twitter. You don't want to, you don't want to get involved with me. Don't but listen you to do, him. You'd need to be following this man on Twitter. But if you do, it's at the Stephen Ruiz. That's Stephen with a V. The only way to spell that name. Ruiz, <laughs> R-U-I-Z. That's beautiful, man. Thank you again. As for us, you can find us on social media as well. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Remember that no K is okay when spelling Jackson. Mike is at, at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at Cigar Thoughts NFL. And on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like the show, drop us a five-star rating, leave us a quick review. To everyone listening, thank you so much for your continued support of the show. We've got nearly 100 five-star ratings on Apple, which is amazing. Please know that by doing that, as well as sharing the show on social media and with your friends, it provides a real spark for Mike and I. We will be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Oh!